Welcome to Where You Are, a podcast that helps families promote their mental health and wellness. Through real stories, expertise, and practical tips, we navigate important topics to meet you where you are in your journey. I'm Char Black. And I'm Michelle Horn. Where You Are is brought to you by BC Children's Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre, a provincial source of mental health and substance use information and resources for children, youth, and families. We hope you'll make this podcast a go-to resource to support both you and your family's mental health and wellness journey from where you are to where you want to be. For our first episode, we want to dive into a topic that's gaining in both evidence and curiosity, and the topic is resiliency. So I have a suggestion before we move forward. Yeah. Let's do some breathing. Have you guys done box breathing? No? Okay, so it's, it's a simple technique, and I teach this all the time. Breathe out for four and then hold. So you breathe in, hold, out, hold. And we'll do that to account of four. So we just reset our systems. That's a big part of being able to to manage sort of anxiety and stress. But what I also like about it is that we all did the same thing at the same time. <laughs> so that, to me, that's what sort of brings us back to a place of being sort of more focused on what we're doing. You know what I mean? Like we get, our minds are like that. So now we're all present. Good suggestion. We are here with Lynn Godfrey and Dr. Linda Ueda to explore resiliency, understand its connection to mental and physical health, and dig deeper into cultivating resiliency in children and youth. Both Lynn and Dr. Ueda bring their own expertise to this conversation today. Lynn is a mom and a grandma who has spent the last 21 years working with, teaching, and taking care of children and youth with a variety of special needs. After losing her eldest son to suicide seven years ago, her journey to understanding the why of this tragedy has led her on a path towards a better understanding of the lifetime impact of childhood trauma in people's lives. She's active in child and youth mental health initiatives in her community through the Division of Family Practice and looks for daily opportunities to show others acts of kindness. Dr. Linda Ueda is a family physician with expertise in child and youth mental health who works at several Fraser Health Youth Clinics and the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital. Her own personal journey into work on resilience began 15 years ago with the birth of her first child. Lynn, Dr. Ueda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. So the term resiliency is becoming more widespread. However, I think it can still be misunderstood a little bit. So Lynn, can we start with you? Um, How would you define resiliency? You know, my journey around resiliency is sort of steeped in um, some of those older perceptions of resiliency, which lean towards he'll be fine, or she won't remember. And so we made assumptions for a long time around resiliency. And and thankfully, now we're in a different space, and we have um, lots more research and lots more studies to help us understand better how the brain works. And so that reflects then, to me, how we need to shift um, how we view resiliency now compared to um, years ago. So this is my favorite saying. Resilience isn't about never falling down. It's about getting back up again. So I always feel like if we can still continue to get back up again, then I think we can truly consider ourselves resilient, no matter what. I love that definition. Dr. Ueda, how would you explain resiliency to the families that you and youth that you work with? Yeah, so the textbook definition is what Lynn alluded to, and it touches on how do we bounce back in the face of 
adversity. So when bad things happen to us, what is our reaction? Are, are, do we fall down? Do we stay down? Are we able to pick ourselves back up and not only do okay, but to actually thrive in the face of adversity? And what's exciting for me to know about resilience is that you're not just either born resilient or not. These are skills that people can learn and incorporate into their daily life because I don't think resilience just centers around terrible things happening and getting back up. It's also, for me, it's day to day. Do I have the energy and the excitement and the curiosity to get through this day? Like, am I giving myself things in order to do all the things that I need to do to support other people? I guess I'm here because the things that I've learned through my medical practice and especially on my own parenting journey, they work. These things work. It's not just like Lynn and I were talking about. It's not just a scientific article, you know, show me the evidence and I get that we need to review the evidence and see it. But these things that Lynn and I teach about, these are things that work, not only for the people we teach, but for ourselves. How do you think resiliency is connected directly to an individual and family's mental health? When stressful things go wrong in childhood, that actually changes the way our bodies perceive the world. And so if things keep happening to me as a child over and over again, where I feel unsafe, and I feel like I need to protect myself, my nervous system will actually change. And so I'll start scanning the world for dangers. And when I do that, my nervous system becomes hyper attuned to things that could possibly go wrong. And when we do that, we kind of send up our fight or flight system to be tuned in, to be on more often. And the problem with that is, you know, when, when you have that fight or flight response, your body does a whole bunch of different things in order to protect you. But not only does your body do things, your mind does things as well. When these stressful things happen, we start reacting from more primitive parts of our nervous system that don't require a lot of thought. And so our thought processes, our problem-solving abilities, all of those things go out the window and we start reacting rather than responding to situations. Where resilience comes in, when we understand that the body has set ourselves up differently to prepare for a really stressful world, we can start to unravel what we're doing. And we can start to take a look at the reasons we're doing them and then start building in those resiliency skills. So as a physician, I, I see I work with a lot of youth. And what I've noticed over this last several years, when I take a step back and say, well, what's going on for this child? What I'm realizing is a lot of youth and families don't even have the foundation, like the, the building blocks of what it takes to actually stay well. So, you know, if we, if we think about a healthy human being, so the path back includes all of those building blocks of feeling safe, you know, having food, having good relationships, of sleeping well, um, stress reduction, all of those things make a huge contribution to our men not only our mental, but also our physical well-being. It's all tied together. So, Lynn, can you tell us about your family's mental health journey and how resiliency played a role in this journey? I can, yes. Raising my kids, I ended up in a situation where, I, uh, where my husband was very chronically ill. So we did have a lot of trauma in our household. 
And I wish we hadn't have, but you know, that it, it does happen. And so that's the, the time when, as my children were in adolescence, where I started to get a bit tripped up on some of that because I didn't really have the skills to manage that. I had learned some new skills about, I think, how to build sort of better and more interactive relationships with my kids than what I experienced. But now here I am, you know, surrounded by crisis and trauma, and I don't know what to do. So that's where, if we could turn back the time machine, where I wish that I could have heard, you know, and been able to do some of the things that we now know work really well, you know, in those scenarios. And in in the teen years, my oldest son started to struggle with some of uh, the more sort of typical mental health issues that come up. So uh, struggled with depression. Um, I think there was anxiety there, but it wasn't necessarily that I saw anxiety. I, I you know, I feel like I probably wouldn't have recognized it if it you know, if it hit me in the face, like I, I just didn't have any labels or understanding of it. And so everything was being looked at very behaviorally. And I was being told by different people, you know, people at the school or whatever, well, just do this or just do that and just do this. And it was like, I, I don't even know why I would do that. There's nothing behind it to, to explain it. I get, I, and so it was hard for me to do those things, some, sometimes sort of impossible to do them. And yet there was a set of expectations that the problem was that that we as parents weren't doing enough. And so we got caught up in a lot of that cycle that I think is really easy to get caught up in. I think we still do it. And, you know, we really struggled as a family over the years. And then for my son, uh, he ended up sort of self-medicating. Like he figured out a way for himself to feel better because he didn't most of the time feel very good, like emotionally and then, I, and I believe physically too. He you really self-medicating with like drugs? And yeah, he started alcohol, using drugs yeah. and alcohol, yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think as a parent, like you start to have those concerns that, oh, you know, great, now my kid's using drugs, just what I need. And then you start to look outward towards the system. So who's going to help my son? Who's going to fix my son? And so, you know, that that was, I think, a lot of our, our viewpoints around, we just need to get him somewhere so he can get some help. I think what's amazing about your story, though, because I know Lynn fairly well now, we've known each other for about three years, is that you're breaking the cycle. Like yes. You're actively breaking the cycle of that transgenerational trauma, if that's what yes. we're using, with your grandchildren. Yes, and that, and that's that part. So, so seven years ago, my son did die. He, he died of suicide, and he had had two previous attempts around that. And those were all tied into his addiction issues and his mental health issues. So it was a long, hard battle. And I, you know, I have a, have a level of peace around it in that um, he doesn't have to fight that battle anymore. But that doesn't mean I don't wish he wasn't here. But I know how hard the battle was. And so part of that learning curve, like what Dr. Linda is saying, is that then as a family with my two other kids who are now adults with their own kids, my grandkids, it's like, okay, so what can we start to do differently? And as I started to learn more about the trauma connection and, and even like the, the, the brain and body connection about trauma, we were able to have conversations. And so that's sort of always what, what my two cents were is in when I share um, my story about our family is that we started to talk about it. We started to have the conversation because when I was a kid, we didn't have that conversation. People have been traumatized when bad things have happened and we lose that ability to translate that feeling of safety to our children. It's almost like a lost language. So uh, resiliency for me is like like relearning that language and building that toolkit 
because all of those things really, really do help. And they're, they're not, it's not rocket science. They're not really, really hard things to implicate, you know, implement in your family. And two, it's about connection and how we connect even within a school system or a, or a recreation system, like how you facilitate connection is sort of the undercurrent of how you become more resilient. I think that's a really interesting concept. And I think a lot of people, when they hear the term resilient, they think about it in an individual way. Like mm-hmm. you you need to be more resilient, get back up when yeah. you fall down. And so it's a really different lens to think about it in terms of connection to others, both in your family and community. Um, I'm wondering if you want to speak a bit more about the, the importance of connection as a foundation for resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a big fan of Dr. Bruce Perry. He he's big in the the area of child trauma, and I love what he says about the the, the more connections a person has, the, the better they do in all areas. If I had to put one thing at the top of my list for resilience, it would be healthy relationships. Connection is sort of the building blocks of all of it, and I also from from my story and my lived experience see what happens to the disconnection aspect of it. So if you can stay connected, you're working towards a positive good outcome. If things go down a direction where you're disconnected, it's not a good outcome. It's a, in in the case of the tragedy in our family, it's a it's the worst outcome. Disconnection sort of can lead to death in the end. Mm-hmm. One of the struggles that our culture has, our collective culture has is this real belief in independence. And kids need to be really independent really soon. And what science is telling us is that as human beings, we're mammals. We're meant to be together and we do well first when we're supported and loved and we know we have somebody cheering for for us. That's when we can soar. But if we don't have that foundational belief that I have somebody backing me up, and if I fall down, that person will be beside me to pick me up. If we don't have that, we don't do as well. There's good news. All is not lost. (laughs) So, you know. Yeah, because the great thing is, it doesn't have to come from the parent. Right. So we do teaching in schools and the, the, sometimes the teachers will say to us, well, this child, like the, the parent is, is not on board. They're they're not supporting their child. And our answer is then then you might be that secure attachment for that child. You might be that person for that child that changes everything. So you both key in on the importance of connection. And I know, Dr. Ueda, that you talk about the seven C's of resiliency, but to you, for both of you, it seems like connection is kind of the top tier for resiliency. Hands down. And so my question to you, Dr. Ueda, is how do parents know if they have a resilient child? Like what does a resilient child look like? So um, there's lots of pieces to that, but just the ability to come back up. So if something happens at school, something really bad happens between a friend, maybe there was a bad interaction with somebody, do you start to see things go sideways? Do you start to see their mood fall down? Um, Do they start to withdraw from people? Or are they able to come home and say, mom, this is what happened today. What do you think? What do you think I should do? Or how can we work through this? Like, so the ability of a child to come to you 
I talk to parents all the time and not only in clinical situations, but also, you know, just because my friend, my children are in situations where, you know, they're dancers. And so we have dance mom talks. And, you know, we talk about the fact that if they have somewhere safe to come and talk, if they feel like they can be connected to somebody, that's when children will grow. That's when they'll learn things. And so I'm guided by even just certain little sentences that people have said over the years to me. Also a fan of Gordon Newfeld, And I had bought several of his DVDs and was watching. And one thing that stood out for me was the fact that he said, you want to try to keep your child's heart soft towards you. And so my children are now heading into the teenage years. And sometimes it's really hard. And so I let that be my guide rather than just... um, thinking I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this. My question to myself is, is my child's heart still soft towards me? And if it isn't, why isn't it? And can I be doing something differently to make them feel like they can come to me with anything? And I think too, when I think about uh, like with, I have a a granddaughter who's 15 and when she was in grade four, she was bullied. And that happens all the time. That's not an exceptional or, or weird thing now. It seems to be more of a norm, which is sad. But there was a prevalent attitude at that time of, well, she just you just need to get her to school and she and she just needs to sit, you know, sit through this and just like it's a, it was a bit of a suck it up attitude that was going on. And it really felt counterintuitive to me from a relationship perspective. And for my daughter too. And so we sort of created a game plan and we were able to figure out what by asking her and talking with her, but not like grilling her, but just in, you know, those sort of opportunities where you have sort of off the cuff conversation. It might be when you're tucking them in bed or, you know, playing a, a card game or, or driving in the car. Driving in the car is a big one. So many conversations happen in the car. <laughs> and so we were able to sort of pull out from her what was difficult for her in terms of now being at school after having been, you know, bullied by a classmate. And so it turned out the hard, hard part was lunchtime. So in the structured part in the, cl- you know, in the classroom, when things are running, um, she was able to manage okay. But as soon as there was sort of that free time opportunity, she just couldn't manage. It was just completely overwhelming. So she, how we sort of problem solved around it now that we knew sort of the part that was hardest for her is we figured out a game plan so that she could come home for lunch every day. Now that might not be sustainable for an entire school year for a variety of reasons, but we juggled enough things so that between us, we could facilitate that. So we would go and pick her up, we'd go home, have lunch. And so we'd give her a time to just sort of reset and then take her back to the structured part. And so that went on for a few weeks. And sometimes they just need that little bit of safety. Yes. To to get the courage up to go, okay, you know what? I've had a breather. I'm going to try this next step. Yeah, exactly. She's been bullied since then, but we don't have to do going home for lunch anymore because now she has some skills and some, she has some perspective on it because we were able to take that time and that opportunity to do it. So I think that those are the types of sort of strategies that I think really help families when you can um, take that time to break those things down with your kids around which parts are, what's the hardest part? What's the second hardest part? Which part of this hard thing is sort of easy, even though that sounds strange, but there are easy things in yeah, of well, hard and you can always take those really hard things and break them down into smaller steps. And 
what we know about stress is there is toxic stress, but then there's also, you know, low and medium amounts of stress. And children actually do well when you give them the opportunity to overcome low to moderate amounts of stress. That's when they gain their confidence and they have this belief that, wow, that was hard, but I did it. And just a follow-up question to that, sometimes we hear from parents who kind of know that there's this difference between this low-level stress and this toxic stress and kind of pushing their kids to achieve or overcome obstacles, um, but they kind of struggle with knowing, like, how, how much should I push them? Like, how much is too much? It is hard. <laughs> it is so hard. Yeah. It, uh, and, you know, I'm here today not just because I'm a physician. I'm here because I'm a parent. And I'm in the trenches with you. I am raising, you know, my daughter is 15 now and you know we have our struggles i am not a perfect parent but whenever we have our struggles i always come back to the foundation and i'm like okay what do i need to do here because sometimes you know i flip my lid too and i'm coming from a place of uh, you know just do this and do what i say but that interplay between what is too much i'm pushing you too hard and when do i need to shove you a little bit I think Dr. Siegel calls it pushing and cushion. Like, when do I need to push you? And when should I cushion you? It is hard. And I think for me, what I do is I, I talk to my friends. I talk to people who have children that are older than me that are doing well. What did you do, do in this situation? You know, what worked for you? It's, it's, there's not a recipe book that's going to tell you exactly every time. And the other thing is to go to your child and to say, how can we do this? Can we break this down? So it's bite-sized pieces. So you can't go to the mall because you're so anxious, you know, that that's overwhelming. But how about today we'll just start by getting you to go and sit outside the mall for five minutes until that feels okay, and then we'll leave. And then once we do that a couple of times, the next day we're going to go into the mall for five minutes and then leave. And that just builds up their ability to say, you know what, I can do this. There are times when you're going to do the wrong thing. Absolutely. You know, I, there are times when I, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was totally the wrong thing to do. And the magic of it is that kids are forgiving and, you know, the repair is really important. So when you do the wrong thing, you say the wrong thing as a parent, the repair is really important to say, you know what, I didn't do that well. And I was stressed because of X, Y, Z, you know, work was really hard for me and I'm, I'm not thinking as clearly as I should have. Let's try this again. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, in the, it, with Ross Green in his um, book around collaborative problem solving. That's a really big part of that process. So when you, you go through identifying what the problem is collaboratively together and then you come up with some possible solutions together. Then you decide together um, what you're going to try first. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, maybe you'll move on to this one, this, you know, plan B or plan Mm -hmm. C. But the key word in all of it is together. So you're maintaining the connection even through the whole process, which has potential to be challenging and painful and possibly unsuccessful, but you're still doing it together. And I think that comes back to that connection piece, because you have to have that connection to have that conversation with your child to find out the the why behind the behavior. I'm just wondering if there's any other really practical strategies that you could talk about that parents can implement in their day-to-day lives or start doing right away to promote resiliency in their children and youth. So the biggest piece that Lynn and I talk about with this is how resilient are you? So, you know, the old saying where you can't pour water from an empty jug, 
you can't teach something that you don't know about. Um, so for parents, I ask them, what are you giving back to yourself? Are you taking the time out you need to come from a place of thoughtfulness and curiosity and calm to be able to parent your own child in that way? Because children ultimately really learn by example. So how, how is your sleep going? Are you getting out and, you know, blowing off your, your fight or flight system? Are you doing some exercise, you know, the equivalent of at least 30 minutes of walking a day? Um, are you socializing with your friends to, and we know even just talking about our problems, like to a best friend, will help us reset our own nervous systems. So are you doing that piece? Are you eating regular meals, healthy meals that don't just consist of fast food all the time because we know that what we eat contributes to our mood? All of those things are really important. And if we we don't embody them ourselves, we cannot teach them to our children. Yeah, I just think it's the classic airplane scenario where you have to put on your oxygen mask first. And children learn so quickly. I, I, that's what, one of the reasons I love working with youth is that they just absorb this stuff like sponges. So, you know, mindfulness practices and relaxation and yoga, like they just, they get it so quickly and they can incorporate it into their lives so quickly. But the basic underpinning of what helps to support a youth, it's, it's the same no matter what age they yeah, are. It's the, it's the principles. It's mm-hmm. about connection. It's about I think it's about being curious. And I think that when you can approach it from a place of curiosity versus sort of trying to label it really fast or diagnose it really fast or put it in the box really fast, I think it's okay for us, you know, within our families and within within any environment to go, oh, I wonder what's going on. If you are, you know, in a, in a family situation, if you're struggling with uh, one of your, you know, one of your kids having, say, anxiety, it's really really easy to get caught up in sort of constantly trying to manage everything so that they're less anxious. And then pretty soon you're just caught in this whole cycle. And it's okay to take a break from it and go, hey, I wonder what this, you know, I wonder what's going on. Like, I'm really curious. I wonder if there's any books at the library that we could find or let's, let's Google this. That's my favorite personally. (laughs) So I think it's really helpful to have access to those resources. However, you can get at them. I think that the Kelty Mental Health Center is a really good opportunity. They have a lot of amazing things, you know, available for resources and tools and strategies and connections that you can make with uh, with service providers and and other parents and youth. So it's it's a one size fits all almost in that um in within that resource. So I guess your question was like practical tools. What can we actually give parents? One of the things that I teach almost everyone, it doesn't matter if they're a youth or if they're, you know, an an older person is the box breathing. And we actually started with that this morning. We just did five rounds of box breathing. And if you have a child that's dysregulated, who is flipping their lid, they're losing their cool, one of the best skills you can help them with is learning to come back down out of that. But, you know, if you can, when they're not dysregulated, teach them the box breathing, you know, so breathing in for a count of four, holding your breath in for a count of four, breathing out for a count of four, and then holding for a count of four. If you can teach that to them when they're not dysregulated, when they're calm, you know, when you can interact with them, then when they do become dysregulated and they allow you to, you know, try that with them, you will find that you can bring them back down. It's the easiest tool. It's the easiest tool. And what's magical about teaching your kids these skills, and, and this came about for me like years later, was now when I'm stressed and my kids see that I'm stressed, they'll come up to me, mom, do you need a hug? Let's do some deep breathing. 
And it's like magic. I'm like, (laughs) right, another little reminder. And then kids also gain the skill to know, oh, you know what, that box breathing, I can use it before I go for a job interview, or I can use it before I have a test. And and it does help calm me down. And this I can use wherever. You can use it anywhere. Sometimes I use it in medical meetings. <laughs> great. I feel like you both kind of keyed in on some major practical strategies that our listeners can take home, um, including kind of like starting from a place of curiosity and the collaborative decision making, the box breathing, mindfulness, and breaking down, breaking things down to smaller steps. Mm-hmm. I just had one question around uh, for Lynn, actually, in terms of you talk about a lot of things that have worked for you and your children, as well as with your grandchildren. Is there any things that didn't work that well that you wanted to highlight for some of our listeners around some pitfalls around building resiliency with your kids? I think the only thing that doesn't mesh well with some of the things that we've talked about is when we get really caught up in our our busy schedules and where we start to lose the priorities of of sort of mental wellness mm-hmm. or being mentally healthy yeah. because we have all these pressures coming from, you know, everywhere, right, on all fronts. And we feel like we have to uh, do all of these things and meet, you know, the needs of all of these things. And then we get sort of in, into overload situations. And like Dr. Linda says, our kids mirror us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not mirroring them. And so I think the wisdom of being able to stop, step back, step back and reevaluate. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, Lynn, how has resiliency impacted where you are now in your mental health journey? I was looking at it from a place of if I knew then what I know now. So if I knew then what I knew now, I would have spent more time playing Monopoly with my kids than cleaning the kitchen or doing the laundry. I would have asked more questions, and I would not have accepted the -the in-the-box answers when my son wouldn't go to school and started self-medicating with drugs. And I would have told him way more often how much I loved loved him and how important he was to me, and that we would figure out a way to get through these hard things together. I'm sure it would have made a difference because connection creates the positive outcomes that build the resiliency. And disconnection, like I said earlier, has um, in some cases really tragic outcomes, but then being able to move forward. So I can't change the past. I can't bring my son back, um, but I can move forward and make sure that it makes a difference moving forward for the, for our family and for you know people that I know and people that I don't know and people that I work with to be able to share my story in hopes that those those things can be a reality for other people too, like the the reality of connection, that it does make a difference and that it matters. Thank you so much for your reflections and your thoughtfulness and thinking about what would be really valuable to other listeners. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ueda, final thoughts or wisdom you'd like to share? I guess I just want to leave people with the knowledge that change is possible. And no matter how old you are, you have a choice and you have a decision about how you want to be in this world. That's hard to let go of what you think, you know, you should be doing and how you should be parenting. To make that leap is scary sometimes. But yeah, just that sense of hope and the things that Lynn and I have seen within families, it's it's just inspiring to me. And that's why I'm so families passionate. Young people that we work with that, mm-hmm. that come and share their stories at events that we go to. And it's just... It is very inspiring and hopeful, I think, to people that have the opportunities to hear those stories, because it really 
shows what makes a difference, I think, because it just does. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just sort of that really tangible, oh, well, this person's okay, so my kid's going to be okay, right? Thank you both so much for those really empowering and inspiring final thoughts. Well, thank you for having us. It's an honor. Um, Yeah, on behalf of myself and Shara, we'd both just like to thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your expertise with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. For our listeners, I'd just like to mention you can check out our website, keltymentalhealth.ca, where we'll be posting the resources that Dr. Ueda mentioned earlier in the talk. And we also have a number of other resources on resiliency on our site. This has been episode one of Where You Are, all about building resiliency. If you have any questions for us, you can email us at keltycenter at cw.bc.ca. Next episode, we'll be exploring mindfulness and its benefits in child and youth mental health. Where You Are is a free educational podcast. To get every episode as soon as it comes out, go to keltymentalhealth.ca slash podcast and hit subscribe. And you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. We hope you'll make us a go-to resource to promote your family's mental health and wellness from where you are to where you want to be. Thanks for listening.